Welcome to a story of shocking secrets, dark corners and tireless dedication. A journey that began with the discovery of a horrifying paedophile ring in the small town of Shoebury, Essex. At its heart is a man whose relentless pursuit of the truth has earned him national recognition and critical acclaim. Listeners, our guest today is the award-winning journalist Charles Thompson. His story starts with a simple meeting in 2015 when a retired Southend NHS manager, Robin Jamieson, walked into the Yellow Advertiser's office seeking Charles's help in unearthing the truth behind a seemingly buried child abuse scandal. Despite facing numerous roadblocks, Charles couldn't ignore his gut instinct that there was something to be uncovered. And this would ultimately become one of the most groundbreaking stories of his career. Over the years, Charles has meticulously pieced together an investigation, uncovering secret files and reaching deep into the sinister underbelly of a paedophile ring that was seemingly swept under the rug by those in power. Through painstaking research, Charles has managed to build a timeline of over 350,000 words, documenting every lead, every encounter, every heart-wrenching story of abuse, despite the authorities' efforts to withhold crucial information. But it wasn't just about exposing the truth. Charles's work has had real-world impact. As a result of his relentless efforts, Essex Police was forged to launch a formal review of the original investigation, leading to new complaints coming forward and a second police probe being initiated. His work culminated in the gripping podcast Shoebury's Lost Boys, shedding light on a story that might have otherwise remained untold. However, despite the accolades and awards, Charles's work is far from over. Many questions remain unanswered and countless victims still search for closure. Today, we delve into Charles's incredible journey and explore the twists and turns that led him to uncover a world of corruption, deceit and unimaginable cruelty. I'm NQI's Jody Doherty-Cove and I'm joined today by Charles, um, who's actually recently joined us on the NewsQuest Investigates team uh, for this afternoon's Talking True Cases podcast. So, Charles, thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. So I guess maybe we should just start, um, just tell us about the moment Robin uh, Jamieson came into the office, if we sort of start the story there and, and just tell us sort of about how the uh, investigation unfolded from that point. So I had been um, reporting on some out-of-court payments which had been made by Essex County Council over allegations of historic child abuse. We'd run a couple of front-page stories on the Yellow Advertiser where I was working at the time, and Robin Jamieson, it turned out, had been following our coverage. He was the former um, manager of the psychology department for the NHS in South End. And uh, he just walked into our office unannounced and said, I'd like to speak to whoever the reporter is that's been running these front page stories about the child abuse payments at Essex Council. So I went down and met him and took him into our boardroom. And over the course of maybe an hour, he just laid out this story about how during the early 1990s, when he had been the manager of the psychology department, his staff had been treating children who were abused by a paedophile ring in South End, and he had been part of the multi-agency response to that case. And somehow the whole case just seemed to have got buried. There were allegations by the children of a widespread abuse ring, but two guys got prosecuted and nobody else. And the two guys that did get prosecuted got let off with very minimal sentences when you took into account the offenses they were accused of. And so really what Robin wanted me to look at 
was why if you have all these kids detailing the sprawling child abuse network trafficking operation why did the police just shut it down and not act on it um that was the question that he posed and that was what i set out to try to investigate so so from that moment obviously that is it's a it's a big task to be to be tasked with as as a reporter um how do you sort of make those first opening steps into into something like that it is a huge thing and of course it was all historic and so um it was very difficult what we did initially to try to get robin's story out was that as journalists will know there's this concept of privilege so if you can get somebody in a, in a position of power a council or somebody like that a police force to give you a statement saying something then you can run it even if it's defamatory because of course this was all defamatory allegations of a pedophile ring cover-up so i spent quite a lot of time trying to get essex council to make a statement um because robin had told me that essex council was very involved in the response to this um case it was essex council that had organized the multi-agency response and for months, they just blanked my inquiries, completely blanked them, didn't even say, sorry, we're not going to comment, just no response whatsoever. And then Robin went to a, an event at the Houses of Parliament, a whistleblowers event, where multiple people who'd worked in, in ch child protective services over the years had, were going to tell their stories of how they tried to get cases investigated and nothing had happened. And it was happening in a little conference room at the Houses of Parliament. And... I sent a message quite cheekily to Essex County Council's press office where I just said that a speech had been made at Parliament about, <laughs> about the case and uh, allowed them to believe that maybe this had been made in the chamber, meaning there was already privilege on the story and therefore we could publish it. And at long last, they finally gave us a statement where they admitted that they were aware of multiple allegations it went further than we thought they said they were aware of allegations of a cover-up and they were aware of allegations that members of staff had been somehow involved in the abuse of children um so with that statement we were able to run a front page story that was the first story we ever ran about robin and um that led to me having a discussion with the police and crime commissioner for essex at the time whose name was nick alston um, and he said he would be interested in meeting with Robin. The other thing that happened as a result of that story being published was more whistleblowers came forward, more child protection workers who'd been involved in the Shubri case, two more came forward. So um, about six months after that story with Robin, those three child protection workers who were Robin, um, a lady called Jenny Grinstead, who'd worked for the Children's Society, and a guy called Rob West, who had worked for the Rainer Foundation, a youth justice project, who received the first disclosure of abuse in the case. All three of them went to a meeting with the police and crime commissioner and the chief constable of Essex Police. And as a result of that meeting, eventually, a few months later, the case was reopened. 
I mean, it's amazing. And, and, and these things seemingly, you know, snowball. It's that kind of initial uh, front page that, that you can run that obviously more people sort of come come forward and you've got more um, uh, to take to, to different authorities. Just take us back to um, obviously, you know, the, the the interesting way you managed to get a, um, a statement out of the out of the council. Um, have you spoken to them about why that may be in the case, about why they didn't initially respond to any of your previous ones and, and left them completely um, uh, um, ignored? Um, and then in, in some cases, and then it only it took for you know them to believe that it's been said in a privileged setting for them to respond to it. Um, it have you had any discussion on on, on with them um, about whether they, you know, whether it was generally just something they looked into because they were looked, looked at that request and they didn't see any of the previous ones or or whether it was something that they felt they didn't need to respond to until, until something had been said in, in that, you know, in that setting? No, I've never I've never discussed that with them. So what happened was <clears throat> the the story that I was working on originally in late 2014 about the um, out-of-court settlements which had been paid. It was something like 10 payments in 12 months for uh, historic abuse alleged, uh, connected to the children's department's alleged abuse. I got involved in a very um, acrimonious situation with the Essex Council press office. So when we so they published those details under freedom of information. So they had published a spreadsheet of every single compensation payment the council had paid for anything over a 12 month period. And within that spreadsheet, alongside all the personal injuries and all the data leaks and everything else they pay compensation for, were these 10 or so payments for alleged abuse connected to children's departments between the 1970s and about 2001. And I sent them a list of questions about those payments and they just refused to answer any of them. They came back and said, we're not answering any of your questions. Then when I persisted, <clears throat> they referred my press inquiry to the Freedom of Information Department without asking me. And the Freedom of Information Department came back and said, we're not answering any of your questions because to answer any of them could potentially identify the victims which was a lie. So for example, one of my questions was in each case, was the complainant male or female? Another one was in each case, what was the age of the, of the complainant at the time of the alleged abuse? Another question was which borough did this happen in? Even if they'd answered all three of those questions, let's say they said in 1973, a 13-year-old girl in Chelmsford said she was abused. The idea that that would identify the victim is plainly nonsense. It was just a lie, an outrageous lie. And so I ended up getting into a very furious dispute with Essex Council's press office over this, with the leader of Essex Council's press office, where it got so heated that he... The, the guy at the time threatened to stop sent to cut us off of their press release list that they would stop communicating with our newspaper entirely. <laughs> so, um, so relations were not good between me and Essex Council's press office because I was really angry because that I was looking into payments that they were making with public money for alleged abuse connected to the council. That's incredibly serious. It's plainly in the public interest. And their reason for not answering the questions was just a lie. It was just a, a demonstrable, outrageous lie that to answer my questions would identify the victims. It was a ludicrous thing to suggest. 
So, and then what I'd done is I'd gone to the head, the councillor, the cabinet member who was responsible for Freedom of Information Department at the time, whose name was Roger Hurst, and said, this is what your Freedom of Information Department is doing. Are you going to do anything about it? And he said, no. So then we put a massive picture of his front, his face on the front page of the paper and said, this is the man who won't tell his department to release details about historic abuse that you're paying the settlements for. Mm-hmm. And so they were just furious with me, the press office. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, and then they were just blanking everything. I was sending them on this matter. So um, I, it's my belief. Yeah, sorry. Why do, you, why do you think that there is such a reluctance in in those opening stages to to release information like that? Because you're, you, I mean, you're completely right. You know, that was never going to identify anyone um, that that sort of information. But why is there kind of like a baseline reluctance to, um, you know, delve deeper into you know some of these horrific things that have happened before in the past? Well, I think it's two things. I think first, it's deeply embarrassing for a public body to be paying out information for historic abuse of children connected to its services. And secondly, I think they thought that they could get away with it because um, we were essentially in newspaper terms, we were right at the bottom of the chain. So we were a local paper, we were a weekly paper, and we were a free paper. So I think they just thought that they could get away with it but they didn't reckon with the yellow advertiser just being as persistent as we were. Um, and uh, my opinion is that when I sent them that email saying a speech has been made at Parliament, they interpreted it the way that I wanted them to interpret it, which was that it's been read in Parliament and we've got privilege on it. So they had no choice but to respond mm-hmm. because that's the only explanation I can come up with for the fact that they just blanked every other inquiry I sent them until I sent them that um that one and the statement that they did send me was so full was so detailed much much more than i thought we would get out of them so um and that was what got the ball rolling and here we are what was that that was summer 2015 we're now at spring 2023 (laughs) the story is still going still going if they just uh, and they see the thing is if they had answered my questions this is the thing this is the lesson for press officers if we've got any press officers watching or then maybe we don't want to tip them off to this but if this is the lesson if they had answered my questions about the payments in late 2014 it might not have gone on the front page it might have been a, a page 3 or a page 5 Essex Council has paid X amount over these kids. These were their ages. This is where they were based. But because they refused to answer our questions, it became one story after another on the front page, continuing wall of silence. This is the councillor whose department won't answer our questions. Then Robin saw those stories. Robin walked into our office and gave us a much bigger story about the Shoebury Ring. So if they had just answered our questions, which is what they're supposed to do as press officers for a public body, which is public funded and is accountable to the public, if they had just answered our questions, this whole thing may never have come out. So in a way, it's good It's good that they didn't answer our questions, but there's a lesson there for press officers. Oh, certainly. I mean, you know, when when information is trying to be withheld, um, there's something sort of, you know, within within obviously yourself and, and other journalists just to go and try and find out exactly, you know, 
why it can't be why it is being withheld um and and what's what the story is behind it but if, if you just take us um uh so uh so the, they have given you a response now and then you're publishing you've published that response um more more and more people are coming forward um take a, tell us about how you kind of you know take that story on and um you know hear um you know uh, how you get more information um, because obviously th- there's one thing for people coming in and tell you their stories and there's another thing between what you can actually publish and I guess a lot of that is kind of piecing together the stories and what is publicly available and um, and what what you can do there so so to just take us um through that process of um firstly listening to these stories and, and accounts of what was happening and secondly how you then find the information to substantiate the claims that are being made into something that can be published Yes. So this is a sprawling story, which has spanned many years. So there's been many, many things that have happened on different occasions, allowing us to publish different parts of the story. But uh, initially what happened was we facilitated the meeting between Robin and the police commissioner, whose name was Nick Alston. At that time, the reason this was such a big story for us at that time was it was very shortly after the Jimmy Savile revelations U tree was all over the headlines every day. <clears throat> we were in the beginnings of Operation Midland and the allegations of abuse in Parliament or connected to parliamentarians. And so historic abuse and cover-ups was a, a huge, huge story. Um, and also what was happening was there were attacks on, on media organizations that had been running these stories. So right at that time, there was a news agency called Exaro, which had been involved in some of the politician stories and they were being criticized for having been too involved with the complainants that they were reporting on. So what we did to protect ourselves as a news organization was we put Robin in touch with the police commissioner and then just took a step back and didn't involve ourselves and allowed them to go and have their meetings and whatever was going to happen. So for quite a while let's say six months or so we just left it alone and then we were contacted to tell us that in about a week's time Essex police was going to issue a press release saying that it was reopening an investigation into the case and so at that point I went down to Chelmsford to interview uh, Nick Alston uh, the police commissioner and so um, we had that kind of officialdom attached to to the story then. So that week we ran a number of stories. We ran a, about a five-page special saying this case is being reopened thanks to our reporting. <clears throat> and then gradually began piecing together the story of what had happened in the original case back in 89-90. So what had happened was in 1989... Two men were arrested, Dennis King and Brian Tanner. Brian Tanner was a Westcliff businessman. Dennis King was uh, a Shubury-based, essentially career criminal, although he described himself as a a cafe worker. Um, They were arrested and charged with a number of offences, including conspiracy, and the conspiracy charge was related to their having run a paedophile ring. That was the allegation, that they were the leaders of a paedophile ring, um, which was operating from Southend and trafficking children around the country to London, up north, and to other places. 
I went in search of the court records for that case and discovered that they were mysteriously missing. Um, so the court told me that even the register that that case was in, was contained within was missing. Everything was missing. There was no trace of this case ever having happened. <laughs> so, but luckily, um, NewsQuest's um, Evening Echo in South End had covered the case at the time. So we had access to the press cuttings from um, 1990, from their what was supposed to be the first day of their trial, where they entered into a plea bargain, and then from their sentencing. So we had the basic details of what had happened. And what had happened was this. Both charged with offences including buggery and conspiracy. The combination of those offences carries a maximum sentence of life in prison. They were the, the children and their representatives were told to expect that these two guys would go down for 15 years to life. What actually happened was they went to court on what was supposed to be the first day of their trial. The kids were there ready to testify. And somebody came into the room and said to the kids, it's all right, you don't need to testify. They've changed their pleas to guilty. What had actually happened was they had entered into a plea bargain where they had pleaded guilty to only the most minor charges and the most serious charge, the conspiracy charge, was allowed to lie on file and the buggery charges were all removed from the indictment. So their anticipated sentences of 15 years to life were reduced and King got four years and Tanner got three which is deeply suspicious, just deeply, deeply suspicious. And when you con when you combine that with what the child protection workers we were in touch with were telling us, it becomes more suspicious because they were saying they were referring more and more victims to the police and the police were refusing to interview them. So you have evidence sitting there of a widespread ring. It's acknowledged in court in the sentencing hearing, it is acknowledged that these two men were the leaders of the ring. However, the charge of conspiracy, the charge of leading the ring, is allowed to lie on file, and they don't get sentenced for leading the ring, even though everybody present accepts that that's what happened. So this was the central question. What on earth happened? Why would they let these guys off? It was acknowledged freely in the courtroom that these guys were the leaders of a, a national paedophile ring emanating so, from the South End. From that point, though, I mean, from, from that point, how do you then go and investigate how that decision was made? Who, who made that decision and, and why they made that, uh, made that decision? A very slow process of, um, on the one hand, trying to contact everybody you can who was involved in the case and get them to talk to you including victims, including child protection workers, and including police officers. And at the same time, using targeted freedom of information requests to try to access information. Now, what eventually bore fruit, what eventually came through for us, was there was one source who'd worked for a particular charity, which was involved in the multi-agency response to the case who I just could not find. They weren't on the electoral register. They weren't in the phone book. <clears throat> Eventually I found what I thought was this person on Facebook based on a few details on their profile combined with who they were friends with, even though they, their profile was not under their own name. It was under a fake name, but I sent them a message 
and said, I think you're the person I'm looking for. Can I please speak to you? And because I was not friends with that person on Facebook, they didn't get that message for months. Mm. Months later, my phone rings and it's this person. They've just found my message in their second inbox on Facebook. Deeply suspicious of who I am. You know, why are you looking into this? Who are you? So I arranged to meet them in a pub in Southend. And I was there for about an hour. The way I got them to meet me was that I said, I'm not going to ask you any questions. What I'm going to do is come and meet you in the pub. I'm going to bring everything I've already published and I'm going to show you who I am and what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I went and did that. They arranged, they agreed to meet again. We met a second time in another pub in South End. And this time they gave me a, a very long interview, about two and a half hour interview. And at the end of that interview, they said to me, do you want a lift to the train station? I said, yeah, great. So we got in their car and they said, I've got to tell you something. At the time of this case, every charity that was representing these kids and making a nuisance of themselves suddenly found their funding was being cut by the council, every single one of them. And at some point, the axe fell on the charity that this person had been working for. And at that moment, they were nearing the end of a degree, a social a social care degree. They were training to be a social worker. And they were in the middle of writing their dissertation. And they had based their dissertation on a number of cases that they had worked on during their time at the charity, including the paedophile ring run by King and Tanner. If their charity closed down, then data protection rules meant that they would lose access to all of the files from all the cases they were writing their dissertation about. And therefore they wouldn't be able to finish their dissertation and they wouldn't get their degree. And so what this person decided to do in the moment was to steal all of the files from the charity and take them home. And at the time that they had found my Facebook message, they had been in the process of burning all of their files because new data protection rules had just come in. This was in 2018. And it basically said that anybody caught with data that they shouldn't have any data controller who's in breach could receive an unlimited fine. So, um, they panicked and started burning all their files. They were having like a weekly barbecue in the garden where they were burning all their files. In the week that they found my message on Facebook, they'd had one bag of files left to burn. And when they looked through it, a number of those files were from the paedophile ring case with King and Tanner. And it was, it represented a minority of what they had possessed, but it was still hundreds of pages of files. And so they said, if you never ever name me, then you can see all my files, which of course I agreed to immediately. Um, it's just remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. It's, you couldn't make it up. Could the you? Timing it's absolutely I mean, extraordinary. You know, you're talking decades, aren't you? And, and, and for, for this to, you know, it would have been weeks or, or days or however much it was yeah. you know, to, to actually stumble across that message. Absolutely that incredible. weekend, 
they were going to burn them that weekend. They've been burning them every weekend. They had one pile left to burn. And when they showed me the files, there was a set of minutes in the files of a meeting between their charity and the police where the police officer in the meeting said that Dennis King was a registered police informant. So that was how we found out that King was a registered informant. The source didn't even remember it. They didn't even remember. <laughs> they wow. didn't remember that wow. that was in the file. They just gave me all their files for a, an hour and said, there you go, look at those and I'll come back and collect them. And mm. there it was. Uh, Dennis King is a registered police informant sitting there in okay. the minutes. I, I, w- I wonder how many, you know, how many, how many pieces of information um, that uh, prob- that could have, could have proven that particular fact um, actually exists because maybe there's none. Maybe that is actually the only place. I don't know. And, and actually the fact that that was very close to being set, set ablaze and, and, and gone forever um, is, is absolutely incredible. So, yeah. so, so going back to the, to the story then, so, so this is kind of starting to make a little bit more sense about potentially why, you know, that the, the sentences, why, why the, the, the plea bargain was, um, uh, was done as it was. Um, so, did we know? Did you know at that time, or have you subsequently discovered the kind of informing that he was doing? Was it was it on other other paedophile networks? Was it on different types of crime? Was it on anything else? No, that is an unanswered question. So the police have a policy. The National Police Chiefs Council has a policy which applies to all police forces in the UK that they must not answer press inquiries about what they call chizzes, which is covert human intelligence sources. In other words, informants, there's a policy nationally that they must not answer any questions. So we've spent or I've spent years on freedom of information requests for files pertaining to King, files pertaining to the case. And we've uncovered hundreds and hundreds, well, over a thousand pages of previously secret documents held by the police through these freedom of information requests. None of them have related to his status as an informant. Um, So we don't know what he was informing on. And there is even a question as to whether really he was an informant because it doesn't make sense on a logical level because the, the whole informant system is predicated on the person who is the informant has to be lower down than the person that they're informing on because otherwise there's no point. You don't you don't let somebody off of a murder so that you can catch a shoplifter. So what is he what could he possibly be informing on that would be more serious than what he was doing? So it, there is a question as to whether he really was an informant or whether he was protected in some way because he knew things that he shouldn't have known because there's a whole element to the story which we go into in the podcast, which is that there is a particular police officer who is linked to King, and there are other police officers who are visiting a flat just metres away from King's, uh, operated by a young woman who was linked to King, um, where these police officers were allegedly using underage prostitutes. So, or I shouldn't even use the phrase underage prostitutes. They were abusing children. They were they were abusing children in this flat. Um, that is that's information that was received by the charities um, back in 1990, 
and it's information that I received separately from somebody who never spoke to those charities at the time. Um, years later, the two things corroborated each other. Um, so there is a question as to whether King really was an informant or whether he was, uh, in fact, the opposite of an informant. Mm, that's incredible. So, so, um, so obviously you've made this, you've made this, um, uh, you know, remarkable discovery in the, in these papers that were, were set to be burned. Um, so where do you start sort of, um, uh, give us, give us some sort of more twists and turns sort of following that moment in terms of piece of information that you've collected, maybe sources that, that you've acquired and spoken to take us through the timeline there. So we revealed that King was an informant. Another thing, I can't remember whether this was immediately before or immediately after, but we also discovered that he was connected to a gang called the Dirty Dozen. So um, the Dirty Dozen was um, a paedophile ring which was implicated in the deaths of at least three children, Mark Tildesley, Barry Lewis, and Jason Swift. Um one of the leading members of that gang was a guy called Lenny Smith. We had a source who came forward in 2017. We codenamed him Victim Six because at the time, to our knowledge, he was the sixth victim to have spoken to the police in the modern reinvestigation that was sparked by our reporting. So he rang in and said, the police have come to my door Um asking me questions about my childhood. And I told them that I was abused, but I'm not really happy with the way that they're handling the case. He felt they were trying to cover everything up. Um, so he started communicating with me in 2017. And over more than a year, I interviewed him numerous times, recorded interviews with him. Um, and this, so he started communicating with me in 2017 in 2018, I meet this source who has the, the stack of paperwork, including the informant document. As I look through this source's paperwork, just huge amounts of information that are contained within this paperwork are corroborating what Victim 6 has been telling me for more than a year. Names, locations, the, um, the, the lady who, was, uh, who had underage girls in her flat that the police were visiting all of this information is in the documents from 1989 90 and 91 and is now corroborating what victim six is telling me in 2017-18 um but victim six tells me something which is not corroborated in any of the documents as far as i can see initially which is that there was a man who was connected to the shubury ring whose name was lenny smith and he never met Lenny Smith. He didn't know who he was. He just knew that King and Tanner used to threaten the children. If you keep, if you try and escape, we'll take you to Lenny Smith, which is exactly what I did not want to hear, to be perfectly honest, because this, as I say, this was right around the time that the Exaro thing was all blowing up in their faces and people were trying to discredit historic abuse cases. There were a number of celebrities who'd been prosecuted under Utree and had been acquitted um, and there was a bit of a backlash going on against the against the whole historic abuse s situation. Carl Beach's allegations were starting to fall apart. And what I did not want 
to be honest, was somebody coming to me and saying, oh, yeah, there's this connection to the Jason Swift case because I thought this is now <laughs> veering into the realms of, like, conspiracy theory, internet mm. territory. And so I thought, oh, no, this is this is bad news. So I had to try and corroborate this. Um one thing that victim six did was he was in, he was, as I say, he was in touch with the police and he kept saying to them, will you please take me on a drive around so that I can tell you all the locations where I was abused. So you can investigate who the, because he didn't know the names of most of his abusers because pedophiles are not that stupid. They don't take you to be abused by someone and show you their passport. They use nicknames, so on. So he was volunteering for a long time for Essex police to take him on a drive around and they wouldn't do it. Um, So in the end, he said, I'll take you on a drive around. So I got in the passenger seat of his car and he just drove around South end pointing out locations to me. I wrote down all of these addresses and later went to the public records office in South end and checked every electoral register from 1978 to 1993 ish for every single one of these addresses to find out everyone who'd ever lived there and found that at one of the addresses, there was a guy called Jack Parsons. Well, Jack Parsons was a child abuser who was linked to Lenny Smith. They had lived together in South End, it transpired, um, and had run an amusement arcade together, which they had used to um, groom children. This was all reported, it turned out, back in about 1993 by um, two journalists called, I hope I don't get this wrong, I think Ted Oliver and Ramsey Smith. They wrote a book called Lambs to the Slaughter. So I thought, right, that's interesting. I've got a link here between Victim 6 and Jack Parsons, but not between Victim 6 and Smith. Smith is not on the electoral register. Mm. However, I then meet a citizen journalist whose name is Martin Walkerdine, um, who has just been running his own investigation into the Dirty Dozen case for years. And it turns out he has a copy of Lenny Smith's prison records that he got under Freedom of Information he shares those prison records with me. And would you believe it? In the early 1980s, Lenny Smith goes to prison and he gives his address to the prison. And the address that he gives is the address that victim six has taken me to wow. where Jack Parsons lived. So um, we were able to demonstrate corroboration there for Lenny Smith's connection to the ring. So he, so victim six would be taken to that address by Dennis King. And that is the former address of Lenny Smith. Albeit, as I say, victim six does not to his recollection. He never met Lenny Smith. He only remembers that him being spoken about as being involved in the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a major discovery that we made also, and potentially also connected to King's informant status. I mean, we've never found any evidence to corroborate this. And all of the police records in the Jason Swift, Mark Tilsley, Barry Lewis murder cases, they have all been sealed by the government for about a hundred years. So probably within my lifetime, we will never know if Dennis King ever cooperated with that investigation. They're all held by the national archive in Kew and no particular reason is given for why they've been sealed, but they've been sealed until about 2080 something like that. Um, So 
is it incredible to, to understand that the, the the process by by which you seal information for so long where you know especially things that have happened you know back then there's vic- victims are, are, are around you know that they at least having that story out and having some f- form of closure would bring something to them i mean it's, it's just interesting for me to to ponder why it would something like that would need to remain secret for a hundred years but I don't know in the course of your investigation whether you found any what, what the rationale behind it is, or whether it's sort of a blanket thing that can't be can't be changed. Or... Well, I think the alleged rationale is that the contents of the files is upsetting to the family members, so they don't want any of the files published while any of the family members who knew the victims would still be alive. Mm. I believe that is the alleged rationale. However, there was a public trial. Um, they don't do this in every case. They don't see all the records in every case. So it does lead you to wonder what it is about this case in particular that has merited the sealing of the files. Um, I mean, there's various conspiracy theories online that, you know, because we do know, we do know for a fact that there were members of parliament who were involved in the abuse of children. Um, That was revealed by ICSA, the national Enquirer. Uh, the National Inquiry into um, ch- Historic Child Sexual Abuse. Um, there's a very good book called Playland, um, which talks all about the establishment's involvement in abuse of young boys. So <clears throat> somebody was procuring boys for these kids, um, for these men, procuring kids for these men. So it's very, very feasible that... Um, the dirty dozen would have been connected to that or that the shoe ring or that both would have been connected to that. Cause in, in many ways, the, the whole idea of a pedophile ring is a bit of a nonsense. So everybody, including the police refers to pedophile rings to abuse networks, abuse. What actually exists is one gigantic network of child abusers. And occasionally the police stumble upon part of that gigantic national network because pedophiles everywhere are connected to pedophiles everywhere else. And very often they meet each other in prison and form associations with each other. And then when they get out, they know that they know a guy in Brighton and they also know a guy in Lancaster and they also know a guy in St. Ives. So it, it's far from um, fanciful that if somebody was procuring boys for people in power, which they were, we know that they were, it, it could have been connected to these people in some way. So what did King know? Did King did King inform on the Dirty Dozen? Who knows? I mean, we know that he was an, an informant, according to the police officer who ran the investigation into the Shubert case. We've got that in writing. What what was he informing on is is a continuing mystery. We can only speculate, but we but you know the evidence points us in certain directions. And, and and I remember um, when we, we sat at the awards, I think last last year, I think we were talking somewhat about this, is about the um, uh, obviously freedom of information requests and all all, uh, all things that go along with that. And it's been remarkably helpful, obviously, in the investigation that, that you've been doing. But um, seemingly so that um, authorities will kind of pick and choose exemptions um, to, you know, to, to suit whatever they want. I mean, for, in, for instance, um, you know, the, the causing grief and upset to, to family members. Um, is something that they might pick or choose to apply to particular pieces of information they don't want um, to go out, um, but might be happy to, um, you know, release 
images to Channel 4 for a documentary or whatever it might be. Um, but, it, but it does seem to be that, that actually the, the rules governing the release of information aren't sort of uniformly applied. And, and kind of if you run into these issues whenever you're trying to um, expose something that, that people really want to, to keep, keep you know, shut. Um, in terms of UFOI and what you've been, what you've been working on, just run us through um, some of the um, ways that you've managed to challenge, successfully challenge some of the refusals of, of, of FOI um, and maybe any tips to anyone who's listening um, about, you know, just general courses of action you can take when you're running into to, to stumbling blocks um, when trying to use a freedom of information request to substantiate um, anything or find out in new information. Well, one of the exemptions that Essex Police tried to use was that they said that they couldn't really, because I asked for all of the files from the reinvestigation of the King and Tanner case in 2016-17. They said they couldn't give them to me because they uh, would give away policing tactics. So I knew that this is a historic investigation. So the tactics they were using were looking at old records knocking on people's doors and asking them questions, maybe looking up people's names on the police national computer. They weren't running sophisticated groundbreaking technology here to track paedophiles live on the internet or something. There was no tactic that they were using, which they, which any old person on the street would not already know about. Everybody knows the police knock on people's doors and ask them questions and take statements. So I found that particularly egregious and i mounted a challenge to that which so and at the very time the very time that they made this argument they had um signed a deal with sky television to make a series called the force essex where camera crews were embedded in the police cars and in the police officers offices the police headquarters filming officers going about their daily business on all sorts of cases from abuse cases to domestic violence, to car chases and stolen cars, murders. They were just being followed around for a fly on the wall TV series. So the argument that I mounted to the information commissioner was how on earth can Essex police within the space of one year sign a deal to embed cameras with its own police officers for a reality t- TV show, but then say they can't answer my questions because it would divulge policing tactics. The other thing that forces have started, uh, lots of people have started using in recent years, until about 2019, I didn't even know that this exemption existed in terms of freedom of information because nobody had ever invoked it before in like 10 years of me using freedom of information on a regular basis it's called section 38 and section 38 is a sort of a health and safety exemption which says that they don't have to release information if releasing it could damage the mental health of any person so basically if somebody somewhere could hypothetically find the information that you've requested upsetting then they don't have to give it to you. They don't have to tell you who they're protecting. They don't have to give you any evidence that that person is opposed to the information being released. So I've got a case going on right now where the family of a deceased woman have contacted me to raise concerns over the fact that they believe that she may have been murdered by her husband. 
and that the uh, police bungled the investigation. There was an inquest where some of this evidence was heard. Um, and they want me to look into the police failings. And so I've requested certain documents from the, the Metropolitan Police with the consent of the deceased lady's family. They have come back to say that the deceased lady's family may find it upsetting if the files are released and therefore they can't give it to me, even though I've already told them that they want me, that they, they were the ones that asked me to request the files. So they just invoke this outrageous, this shouldn't even exist as an exemption. You know, mm -hmm. this is a very, this is a very British thing. I mean, in America, for example, if I wanted to find out about mistakes in the investigation into that deceased lady's death, I would be able to go down to the police station and say, here's my press card. I want the file. And they would give me the file. If there was a court case, I'd be able to go down to the courthouse, show them my press ID and say, I want the file. And they would give it to me. In England, you can't get anything. You have to fight tooth and nail. So in the Shubury case, it took me three years to get hold of the King and Tanner investigation from 2016-17. I had to fight Essex police for about two years and then go through the impartial watchdog, the ICO, for another year. And even when I won, I, I won against Essex police and the NPCC within a couple of months, two long-running battles. I was the first person in UK history to win access to deceased offenders records through freedom of information in America, you don't even need freedom of information. You can just go to the police station and get it. That's it. That's so is, and we live in a, such an incredibly secret closed society, which is so establishment. Everything is controlled by the establishment and us plebs have access to absolutely nothing. We're not allowed access to anything. We have to fight and fight and fight to get it. It's just disgusting. And the existence of Section 38 is an absolute outrage. To have a Freedom of Information Act, which says, which has an exemption built into it that says if a hypothetical person could hypothetically find it upsetting, we don't have to give you the information. That's just a disgrace. It's just an absolute disgrace. So that needs undoing. That just needs to be deleted from the act. It's an outrage. It it just kind of gives it, it gives them uh, the ability to pick and choose the requests that they wish to answer and the ones that they wish to refuse. Um, having having something like that in there, I mean, I mean, you you touched on it very very strongly there, and I just want to um, delve into that a little bit more. Um, we're kind of coming near to the end of the show now, but um, you know, to you've been fighting tooth and nail to to bring this stuff to light. Um, you know, fighting for transparency. And as, as you say, I mean, the, the, the laws and regulations around particular data and information that you've been trying to get access to would be as simple as walking down the police office, uh, police station um, in, in America. Um, what do we need to change um, to, to, to be able to have a more transparent system? And secondly to that, why is it important to have transparency in this kind of information um, that you're, you're requesting as well? I'll start with the second question. So the reason it's important is because we fund the police, we fund the courts, we fund the councils, we fund all of public life through our taxes. And we as taxpayers are entitled to know that the systems that we're paying for are or are not working. 
we need to be able to scrutinize these systems because there are terrible failures and these failures, we're paying for them. That's us. We've, we've paid for that. We've paid for the child abuse survivors in Shoebury to have their lives destroyed. That's how we've paid for that. We've, been, we've got the bill. So we have a right to scrutinize what's happened and demand better from the people that we're paying to act on our behalf because these systems all exist allegedly to serve the public interest. Laws exist to protect the public. Courts exist to protect the public. The police exist to protect the public. They charge the public for that protection. If they're not doing their jobs properly, we have a right to know about it. We have to be able to scrutinize what they're doing. What needs to happen is the Freedom of Information Act certainly some of it needs to be overhauled. So there should be information that you can access without the Freedom of Information Act for a start. We shouldn't need the Freedom of Information Act to find out about people's court convictions and things like that. That's a disgusting. It's a disgrace. That's public record. It's already been heard in a public courtroom. We should be able to access that. The act itself needs changing. Section 38 should not exist. There are other exemptions which definitely need tightening up so that the act is very nebulous and vague in places. So for example, there's exemptions for material gathered in police investigations. And it just says something like subject to a police, uh, to a public interest test. So material gathered by a police, by police in an investigation is exempt unless it's in the public interest to release it. Well, who decides what's in the public interest? You know, I mean, I would say that overwhelmingly in almost all cases where journalists are asking for information, they're doing so because there's a public interest. Yeah, almost nothing triumphs a public interest test stage. You have to fight and fight and fight. So the act needs tightening up. Section 38 needs removing completely. That shouldn't exist. It's just a disgrace. And also we need a, a regulator which is not toothless. So the ICO... I usually win when I go to the ICO. I very rarely lose, but it takes so long. The ICO is underfunded. It takes months, if not years, to get your case heard. If you're a journalist, you're generally requesting that information for a journalistic purpose. And um, what happens is the public body succeeds. It achieves its intended outcome, even if it loses the ICO case. Because if it takes you a year to get the data, then by the time you get it, it's a year out of date. In most cases. Now, my case is unique because I'm reporting specifically on a historic case. So even if I have to wait five years to win an ICO appeal, there will still be a, a merit in that information when I get it. But if you're trying to access information about annual crime data or something like that, something that they're not giving you right now, it's very possible that by the time you get it in a year's time or 18 months time following an ICO appeal, you, it won't be relevant anymore. It won't be newsworthy. The moment to use it to hold power to account is gone because the chief constable that was in charge at that time is gone. The government that was in charge at that time has been voted out, etc. So if we're going to properly hold power to account, we need these cases to be resolved quickly and the current ICO system doesn't allow that. It has too little resource, too little staff, and too many cases to adjudicate. And in the meantime, what you said is very true. Public bodies are able to pick and choose. So you have a situation where 
a police force can choose to cooperate with 24 hours in police custody on Channel 4 and hand over vast amounts of information, police interview recordings. They allow the, the cameras into the cells to, to film the people in their, in their prison cells and so on and so forth. And yet I, as a journalist at a local paper, want to get hold of information which is nowhere near as intrusive as what they're freely handing to Channel 4, and they won't give it to me. So you have a situation where there's no parity. The police can pick and choose what they tell people about what cases. They can cover up what they want to cover up and trumpet what they want to trumpet. And that's not how a democracy is supposed to function. And that doesn't help us to hold power to account. We have to. We all have to have access and we all have to have the ability to scrutinize equally. Otherwise, nothing works properly. No, well, fantastic answer, and um, yeah, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, just one final question from me, because I know we're, we're running a little bit out of time here, um, but one more question from me, and then um, we'll open up and see if Jamil's got any questions from the audience, um, if they've got any questions for Charles. Um, so obviously you're continuing to seek justice um, for obviously the countless victims still searching for closure for this. Um, what, what's your future plans and goals in terms of the investigation, in terms of the um, uh, Shubri investigation? Are there any sort of new leads developments that you're currently pursuing or you don't want to give away too much about what you're doing or is that up to you? The Shubri case, um, I don't know how much further I can take it while people are not cooperating with me. So um, all of the police involved in the case won't talk to me. The people who know the answer to why King got, King Antenna got the, the very, very generous deal that they got are the police and the prosecutors. If the police and the prosecutors are not going to talk to me and the records are sealed or you have to fight for years to get hold of the records if they even still exist. It's going to be very difficult to solve that mystery. So I live in hope that somebody's conscience will get the better of them and they will get in touch. There are victims out there who were very, who were around for a long time. They were around King and Tanner for a long time and they probably have information. Some of them I can't trace and some of them don't want to talk to me. Um, which is understandable because it's re-traumatizing to talk about things like that that have happened to you during your childhood. At the moment, my energy is largely being channeled into a new case, which is the Jason Moore case, um, which I'm working on for you guys at NewsQuest Investigates, which will be um, a podcast series at some point in this year. Um where we're reinvestigating um, a less historic case. We're reinvestigating a, a 2013 conviction, a murder conviction of Jason Moore. So Jason Moore is in prison right now for, uh, for murder, for the murder of Robert Darby. He insists he's innocent. Um, he is serving a minimum tariff of 18 years. He's been given a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 18 years. However, after those 18 years, he won't be considered for parole if he doesn't accept that he committed the crime and express remorse. And so he says he will never do that. So he's prepared to spend the rest of his life in prison because he says he'll never confess to a crime he didn't commit. So um, I've spent the last, since November 2021, I've been looking into Jason Moore's case. Over the past month, we've published five quite detailed feature stories on the Romford Recorder and our other 
East London titles about the Jason Moore case, analyzing different elements of um, the prosecution case against him and whether they hold up. Uh, so I'll be continuing to work on that case. Uh, but Shubury is always bubbling away in the background. But I don't want to talk about what what's going on yeah. there. No, fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, uh, yeah, that that the Jason case looks absolutely fantastic, and um, yeah, we'll obviously share more news about that when it when it happens. Um, Jamil, do you uh, do you have any questions from the audience? We've got probably time for one. Yeah, hi Charles. Um, I've got a question here for you about the Lost Boys podcast. So it says in the Lost Boys podcast, Charles mentioned info was held back from the FOI request as it had come from the security services. Was there any hint about why they had got involved? Organized crime? Question mark. That's a good question, and I'm afraid the answer is that I don't know. So all we know because they didn't give us the information because they said it had come from the security services. So we don't know what it was. (laughs) So uh, we just know that information came. There was some information that was given to the police in the reinvestigation in 2016, 17, which was exempt from disclosure under freedom of information because it was supplied by the security services. In the absence of transparency, people are left to speculate as to what that means. I'm not going to speculate publicly about what that means, but it's certainly intriguing. Interesting. So, um, so certainly, so we'll, we'll have to um, uh, wrap that up just because we've, uh, we've hit, hit the, um, uh, the, the hour mark. Um, so as we close today's uh, moving discussion with Charles uh, Thompson, the tireless journalist who has dedicated years of his life to unraveling the twisted truth behind the tubery paedophile ring, we're left with a haunting reminder of the dark corners that can exist within our society. Charles's unyielding determination to seek justice for the victims of this harrowing case is, uh, and his commitment to bringing their uh, stories to light is, is truly inspiring. So thank you, Charles, for joining us today and giving our listeners a glimpse into the world of your fantastic investigative, investigative journalism. Thanks very much. And if anyone wants to listen to the podcast, it's Unfinished. Um, that's the title of it. It's season two, Shubery's Lost Boys, and you can get it um, wherever you normally get your podcasts, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Or you can go to podfollow.com forward slash unfinished dash one. Brilliant. Well, obviously, uh, we wish you continued success in your pursuit of justice and, and answers in this case, um, you know, for the victims, countless victims who are still searching for, for closure. So, so thanks again, Charles. Um, I've been Jody Doherty Cove um, from NQI. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Mark Williams Thomas, our usual host, should be back next week. Um, so be sure to join us next time. Thank you. <laughs>